You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 229 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, in last week's episode, we talked about Abraham Lincoln's adoption of emancipation as a Union war aim, and how the relationship between politics and war meant that the president was counting on federal armies to win major victories before the end of 1862 and the signing of the final Emancipation Proclamation on January 1, 1863. Lincoln's need for a military victory to sustain emancipation as a key war aim meant that the Army of the Potomac and its new commander, Ambrose Burnside, would be embarking on an unprecedented winter campaign. On November 14th, Burnside received Lincoln's and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck's lukewarm endorsement of his proposal to sidestep east to Fredericksburg and then head for Richmond. The very next day, November 15th, Burnside put his plan in motion and the first elements of the army started off headed for Fredericksburg. Speed was of utmost importance in Burnside's plan, because if he could get ahead of Lee by quickly seizing Fredericksburg and then swiftly heading south, then he could theoretically keep ahead of Lee all the way to Richmond. With speed being so important, Burnside did his part, getting the army in motion on November 15th, and just two days later, on the 17th, Bull Sumner's right grand division arrived at Falmouth across the Rappahannock River from Fredericksburg. The rest of the Army of the Potomac, William Franklin's Left Grand Division, and Joseph Hooker's Center Grand Division, arrived in the vicinity over the next day or so. And so at the end of the last show, we said that with things going so well, Ambrose Burnside seemed to be justifying the trust placed in him. He had been in command for less than two weeks, but nevertheless, in that time, he'd formulated a new plan of campaign, reorganized the army, and commenced a swift march, and now his troops stood poised at their first objective. Better yet, Fredericksburg, there just across the river, was held by only a handful of Confederate troops, only about a thousand or so men. Burnside had not only stolen a march on the rebels, but Robert E. Lee still remained largely in the dark as to the true intentions of the Federals. 
and so Longstreet's Corps was still over 30 miles away at Culpeper, while Stonewall Jackson's Corps remained even farther away, out in the Shenandoah Valley. That meant that all Burnside had to do was get his forces across the Rappahannock quickly, and Fredericksburg and the road south to Richmond would be his. So, yep, the ingredients for a major federal triumph were all there. Ah, but you'll recall that we said there was one thing that was missing. Pontoons. You see, the bridge at Fredericksburg had been destroyed, and there wasn't another one anywhere nearby for the Federals to use to cross the river. And so to get the army across the Rappahannock, Burnside had asked for enough pontoons to be forwarded to the river so that he could build several floating bridges. Great idea, right? Except for the fact that when the army reached the river, the pontoons were nowhere to be found. So the Army of the Potomac had arrived opposite Fredericksburg, ready for action, but the pontoons were nowhere to be seen. This proved to be a critical moment in the campaign for Burnside. Should he wait until the pontoons arrived and cross the army in the vicinity of Fredericksburg? Or should he shift his advance elsewhere and threaten Richmond by adopting a new plan? Well, Burnside chose to wait, and this delay would doom the campaign as he'd imagined it. On November 17th, two days after the Army of the Potomac had started its march to Fredericksburg, Robert E. Lee informed Confederate President Jefferson Davis, quote, There is a general movement of the enemy, end quote. But Lee was not yet certain of the Yankees' destination. The rebel commander thought Burnside might be headed to Fredericksburg, but he knew the Federals hadn't taken steps to establish a new line of supply that would let them operate from Fredericksburg. So Lee, at first, discounted the idea that Burnside was moving the Army of the Potomac there. Lee told Davis, quote, I think some provision would be made for subsisting a large army if a movement upon Fredericksburg was designed. End quote. The importance that Lee attached to logistics was correct, well, what he didn't know was that Burnside's plan was put in motion so quickly that the Federals were having to play catch-up as far as opening a new supply line. So Lee just wasn't aware of it yet, but the Yankees were actually taking steps to open a new line of supply to support an advance south from Fredericksburg. At any rate, Lee was starting to receive some reports that some Federal troops had shown up at Falmouth across the river from Fredericksburg, but he still remained in the dark as to Burnside's true intentions. So Lee asked his cavalry commander, Jeb Stewart, to find out where the Yankees were going. When Stewart reported on November 18th that the entire enemy army had pulled up stakes and marched east toward Fredericksburg, Lee began to believe that that place was most likely Burnside's destination after all. Realizing that the Federals had stolen a march on him, Lee, that same day, November 18th, issued orders putting Longstreet's Corps in motion. 
Lafayette McClaw's division would move directly to Fredericksburg, but Lee had little hope of holding the city now that Burnside had got the jump on him. So McClaw's was really meant to act as a blocking force to slow down the Federals' subsequent march south once they captured Fredericksburg. Meanwhile, the rest of Longstreet's corps would move so that some of the troops could back up McClaw's while others would begin to set up a new defensive line down along the North Anna River. The North Anna, about 25 miles south of Fredericksburg, was where Lee wanted to confront the Yankees anyway. And then, for the moment, Robert E. Lee told Stonewall Jackson he could perhaps start to move some of his troops east, out of the Shenandoah Valley, but that Jackson needn't worry yet about actually linking up with Longstreet. Lee, at this time, probably wanted to leave Stonewall free to operate so that he might have the opportunity to strike the Federals from the west when the enemy came up to Lee's defensive line along the North Anna. But there wouldn't be any Confederate stand along the North Anna River south of Fredericksburg. That was because when he received news that Burnside had not immediately crossed the Rappahannock and seized Fredericksburg, Lee quickly altered his plans and ordered all of Longstreet's units to concentrate at Fredericksburg. And so the missing pontoons and Burnside's decision to accept the delay and wait for them to arrive doomed the federal commander's attempt to use speed and surprise to gain the upper hand. When Burnside's troops first arrived opposite Fredericksburg on November 17th, only about a thousand Confederates held the city and blocked the road south. However, by the time the pontoons finally arrived, Robert E. Lee had figured out what was going on and started to concentrate over 75,000 rebel troops along the Rappahannock. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
When the Federals arrived opposite Fredericksburg and Burnside learned that the pontoons would be delayed, two of his generals nevertheless urged him to strike immediately. Bull Sumner, who had learned of a ford not far upstream from Falmouth, asked permission to cross the Rappahannock at once and seize lightly defended Fredericksburg. But the weather was threatening, and the rivers were already high from recent rains, and Burnside feared the possibility of having a portion of his army isolated across the Rappahannock, so he ordered Sumner to stay put. Then, on November 19th, Fighting Joe Hooker proposed his own scheme, offering to cross the Rappahannock at a different ford even farther upstream, after which he would strike out and turn Lee's left. Burnside pointed out that such a move would mean Hooker would be separated from the rest of the army by 35 miles and not just the Rappahannock River, but also the Rapidan. Besides, it was still raining, and the same concerns that had led Burnside to veto Sumner's proposal also led him to turn down Hooker. Burnside, sensibly, didn't want to risk having a portion of his army cut off and isolated in enemy territory. But Hooker, ever on the lookout to engage in some shameless self-promotion, decided that he wouldn't make the proposal to Burnside alone. In an act of stunning insubordination, he sent a letter directly to Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, explaining his idea and not so subtly criticizing Burnside for his caution. Hooker even presumed to sign the letter to a cabinet member he had only met once as your friend. Well, Stanton wisely never replied to Hooker's letter. Anyhow, Burnside wouldn't have had to worry about any of that, about crossing at fords and high water and scheming subordinates, if only the pontoons had arrived on time. So what had happened to the pontoons? Well, that's a story in itself, but to make a long story short, Burnside thought he had made it very clear at their November 12th meeting that he needed the pontoons to meet the army at Fredericksburg, but Henry Halleck apparently misunderstood this aspect of Burnside's plan, and so he assumed there was no urgency about the pontoons, and he didn't immediately act on Burnside's request for them. And then, even once the ball did get rolling, bureaucratic snafus, downright stupidity, heavy rains, sleet, and muddy roads, all combined in a perfect perfect storm of obstruction and delay so that the first pontoons didn't reach Burnside until November 24th, and the rest got there the next day. That, dear listeners, was eight days after the first elements of the army had reached the Rappahannock opposite Fredericksburg. Burnside was so furious at the setback that when Brigadier General Daniel Woodbury, who as commander of the Army's Volunteer Engineer Brigade was in charge of almost all the pontoons and bridging material, reached Falmouth on November 24th, Burnside had Woodbury arrested and held until he could provide a satisfactory explanation regarding the delays. The astonished Woodbury quickly did so, and Burnside calmed down. Woodbury was released, but both he and Halleck were blamed by the northern press. Meanwhile, on the Confederate side, McClaw's division had arrived at Fredericksburg on November 20th, 
and the rest of Longstreet's corps reached the city by the 23rd. Jefferson Davis had made it clear by the time Lee himself reached Fredericksburg on the 20th that he, Davis, wanted the Federals stopped there rather than at the North Anna River, which was farther south and closer to the Confederate capital. And so, although Lee wasn't thrilled about the prospects of defending the Rappahannock, he nevertheless bowed to the pressure from Richmond and began to deploy Longstreet's troops for the defense of Fredericksburg. But Lee didn't for a moment consider mounting a defense of Fredericksburg itself, since Federal artillery positioned on Stafford Heights just across the river would make that impossible. But just behind Fredericksburg, there was a long, wooded ridge that offered a first-rate defensive position. Beginning at the Rappahannock north of the town, the ridge formed a gentle crescent that curved south and east for a distance of about seven miles. Rising at its highest point to an elevation of about 100 feet, it was, for the most part, beyond the range of the Yankee guns across the river. Along this high ground, Lee placed Longstreet's divisions, with Richard Anderson on the far left, then McClaws just behind Fredericksburg itself, then George Pickett holding a low-lying area on either side of a creek called Deep Run, then John B. Hood on the far right. Robert Ransom's division was held in reserve, and a single brigade of infantry was deployed in Fredericksburg itself to harass any attempt by the Yankees to cross the river there. Meanwhile, Stonewall Jackson had delayed his departure from the Shenandoah Valley as long as possible, nurturing the hope he could fall on the flank of the Federal Army. But when it became obvious that a major battle was looming, Jackson, on November 21st, put his men in motion to march to Fredericksburg and reunite with Lee and Longstreet. On the 24th, Stonewall crossed the Blue Ridge Mountains and left the Shenandoah, the scene of his greatest victories, for the last time. Six months later, he would return in a casket. Well, that's a bit of ominous foreshadowing. Well, anyway, here, the head of Jackson's column marched into Fredericksburg on the afternoon of December 1st. The last of his troops arrived two days later. Stonewall's corps had trekked 175 miles in just 12 days. As they came up, Jackson's units were positioned south of Longstreet's lines. Stonewall's arrival allowed Robert E. Lee to stretch his defenses along the Rappahannock for 30 miles, covering all the possible points where Burnside might cross the river. Immediately above and below Fredericksburg itself, the Confederates dug rifle pits, and erected breastworks on the high ground. In addition, Longstreet had ordered Lieutenant Colonel Edward Porter Alexander to select positions for the Corps' artillery batteries, and Alexander set to work with a will, laying out a formidable gun line on the high ground behind Fredericksburg. With his army reunited, his troops entrenched and covering the riverfront, and his guns expertly sighted, Robert E. Lee waited to see what Burnside would do next. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Voices of the Civil War, Fredericksburg, by the editors of Time Life Books. 
Yep. Uh, as you guys know, when we cover major battles, we try to include a lot of first-person accounts from soldiers and even civilians. And time and again, we'll get the question, hey, where do you get those quotes? And most often, they come from this excellent Time Life series, Voices of the Civil War. Uh, beginning with the next episode, as the Federals finally cross the river, we'll be sharing some good quotes from the Fredericksburg volume in this series. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Um, so, yes, we also noticed this was a pretty short episode, but this has been a bit of a crazy week here, and we thought you guys would like to have a short episode rather than no episode at all. Rich got a new job. Uh, yes, I have a new job, which you all don't need to worry about, except it made things a bit crazy this past week. Oh, and also, I won't be on call weekends anymore. Uh, so in the past, uh, sometimes that interfered with our recording of the podcast, but we won't have to worry about that anymore. Yay! Yay! Uh, yeah, being on call weekends was kind of a drag. Um, anyway, as we wrap things up for this show, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Andy and Phil. And a big thank you to Ron L. for his donation to the podcast. And then just a reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we promise we'll finally get the Federals across the river. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.